Good evening. Glad you made it back out. Nice to know I, I didn't uh, scare you away for, for night number two. So it is uh, so good to see all of your faces and uh, we'll do what we did last night, what we did this morning and what we did Sunday morning. We're just going to uh, position ourselves at the Lord's feet and trust him to speak to us through his word and and again, hopefully we are very anxious in a good way to hear exactly what he would say to us and whatever that is, that we would, we would take it and run with it. And I can't emphasize enough how much glory that will bring to him when we hear directly from him and to please him and to worship him, uh, we obey that. It, it's wonderful. And not only is it wonderful uh, for him, with respect to his glory, but it's wonderful for you in terms of what that does in your life. And so uh, with that, why don't we pray and uh, trust the Lord to get us ready for that. Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for just how wonderful you are, how good you are. We sang about that to you, Lord, and it is so true. Every word of it, all of our lives. Um, you've been good. You've been so faithful. And, and Lord, we say thank you. And Lord, would you help us tonight uh, as we are all here gathered and uh, sitting at the feet of your word, uh, that Lord, there would be a healthy anxiousness to know what you would say to us. And that Lord, we would not just be hearers of that, but that for your glory alone, we'd be doers. And so Lord, I do believe that because your word is open, your spirit will definitely speak. And uh, Lord, from there, obviously, we'll have a choice or some choices to make. So please have your way in this time and please be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this will not come as a surprise to you, but in high school, I was not a member of the National Honor Society. I, I, I was not. Now, I, I've heard about people who were a part of that. I don't know if my invite got lost in the mail or <laughs> there was a breakdown, uh, something along those lines. But I, I, I share that with you because I'm going to begin tonight with uh, a sports analogy. So that's what guys who were not a part of the National Honor Society do. <laughs> right. I can't give you a science analogy <laughs> or anything like that. I, I, I've got to go with sports, so uh, please bear with me. That helps me to uh, relay truth. But in 2003, our beloved Kansas City Chiefs, yes, absolutely, yes, our beloved Kansas City Chiefs uh, had a remarkable season. The Chiefs went 13-3 and that year, and uh, if you were a Chiefs fan during that time, from everything that we saw in the regular season, we were a lock for the Super Bowl. I mean, it, it had Super Bowl written all over the season. Our defense wasn't that great that year, but at Arrowhead in Kansas City, they were really, really good. They played above their talent. The Colts were led by a guy by the name of Peyton Manning, meaning you will remember that name. And we played the Colts that year in the playoffs in the divisional round in Kansas City at Arrowhead. The Chiefs lost that day, and to this day, there are a number of Chiefs fans who still mourn that loss, and I think I might know one who is still mourning that loss. 
But I remember watching that game, and at the end of the game, they were interviewing Tony Dungy, who was the head coach of the Colts that year. And they were, you know, asking him questions about the game. And, and he said something about Peyton Manning that it just absolutely blew me away. He said, to prepare for that game, Peyton Manning watched every defensive snap for the Chiefs at Arrowhead that season, including preseason. So that's 10 games. So he watched every snap to get ready for that game. And if you watch that game, uh, it comes as no surprise now why the Colts never had to punt that day. They were extremely prepared. And for those of you who maybe not be, aren't football fans, let me just translate what Tony Dungy was saying about Peyton Manning. That's a lot of hours, folks. <laughs> a lot of hours. And in a word, it's called preparation. Now, Peyton Manning did that for a temporal crown. Like, who even cares now? I mean, that was 2003. I mean, like, who cares? Our preparation matters so much more than that, doesn't it? And that's where we start tonight here in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, looking at preparation. We're going to be looking at verse 3 here in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And the Bible says, Wherefore, all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast, which was in the seventh month. Now, as we begin to unpack this, uh, what we're going to see once again is the focus of worship, which last night we said is bringing glory to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. According to 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 38, this dedication service took place 11 months after the temple had actually been completed. So that begs the question, why? Why did Solomon wait 11 months to dedicate this house to God? Well, because he wanted to dedicate it during the Feast of Tabernacles. It's very intentional, which was a very joyful and celebratory feast. And knowing that the population in Jerusalem would swell at this time, Solomon wanted to position this dedication so that, listen, so that God could get the maximum glory out of this. That was why. At heart, Solomon wanted God to be glorified mightily in this dedication. And that strikes to the heart of a true worshiper. A true worshiper is concerned with that. A true worshiper is preoccupied with that. A true worshiper is all about maximizing the glory of God. How can God be fully glorified in and through everything? That is of great importance to them. And Solomon would have used those 11 months to prepare for the dedication of God's house. Listen, you do not have a dedication service of this magnificence. Of, of, of this extravagance, you don't have a service like that on a whim. No, that requires great planning. That requires a lot of deliberation and all of those things. And God's glory is worth that. And listen, there is even worship in the preparation because it is all about the glory of God. So in this tonight, we're looking at the preparation for worship. And again, most of us, I would imagine, we refer to 
our Sunday morning gatherings as worship services. But if we were to be honest tonight, at least for many, worship does not actually make it on our radar on Sunday morning until the lyrics of the first song that we're singing appear on the screen. There's been no direct engagement with God that morning. No real thought of him. No preoccupation with worship. The check that we write for our tithes and offerings is often written with the same mundane spirit that we take when we're writing out a check for a utility bill. It's not an act of worship. We don't look at it as an offering of worship to God. For some, if they're honest, if they aren't a cheerful, a cheerful giver, it's somewhat of a necessary evil. It's not worship. And please understand, God sees that. He sees your heart. And it speaks to how we view it. It's a bill. It's not an act of worship. Listen, preparation is essential for dedication. It is. How we prepare ourselves to approach God in worship, listen, speaks volumes regarding what we think of him. It does. Whatever is happening in corporate worship, whatever takes place in a room like this on a Sunday, listen, should be the expression of what we have been thinking about and working through in private. Like it's, it's a continuation. Before we ever land in the parking lot of this building, we're already in a place of worship. We're already there. Uh, we're, we're not going to simply engage God for the first time on Sunday morning once we're in this room. No, from the moment that we opened our eyes, because we're thankful. We're thankful. You open your eyes, you ought to be thankful. Just the blessing. You know, all the things that God did. Lord, thank you that, that we were able to sleep in a warm, comfortable bed last night. God, thank you for life. God, thank you for sight in our eyes. Thank you for hearing in my ears. Thank you for movement in my limbs. Thank you for giving me another day to know you afresh. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth today. Thank you for the privilege of being able to offer you praise, honor, and glory. This is already happening. God, listen, the only reason, the only reason that we can write this check the only reason that we can present this offering to you for your glory is because of how good you've been to us. You've been good. You've been faithful. You have provided for us. You have blessed us. And God, from the depths of our heart, I cannot wait to participate in the worship service during the offering. It's a joy. It's a privilege to be able to walk in and be in the company of your people. And when that plate comes around, God, it is with joy that we give it. 
And so when the song comes on the screen, we're just continuing what started at home. And when that is not the case, we don't come as a true worshiper. We come as something else. And one of the reasons that our worship services seem so lackluster, so humdrum at times, because listen, so often we prepare for the service, but we don't prepare for worship. especially in ministry leadership if we're not careful. We wanna make sure that all the um, service details, all the I's are dotted for that, all the T's are crossed for that. Is AV taken care of, is that all set up? How about our kids ministry? And how about this ministry area and that ministry area? We gotta make sure everything is set just right. Gotta make sure everybody's in place and everything is working. And listen, all of that matters, I get it. And we shouldn't be sloppy and indifferent and all of that, but, but so often we're so preoccupied with that, we're actually not ready to worship. And what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8 could so easily be said of us on many Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or Tuesday nights where he says, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The only reason he could say that about us in a setting like this is because we weren't prepared for worship. So our lips are moving, but our hearts, our minds are really not engaged with him in worship. Now the focus of worship is amplified in verse three when we consider the number seven, which we know is a number that is not insignificant with God. This number represents perfection. It took seven years for Solomon to build this house. Now we understand that um, <laughs> Solomon uh, took almost twice as long uh, to build his own house, and that house is also quite larger than this one, and that's a different conversation for a different time, but the number seven is here with respect to the time it took to complete the temple. The Feast of Tabernacles, as you see here in verse three, was observed in the seventh month. This was the seventh and final feast that was to be observed by Israel. And that was to remind them of God's faithfulness during their time in their wilderness. They were to construct and dwell in booths for seven days during that time. And it also was a time of thanksgiving for God's faithfulness and his provision and all of that. But this all clearly pointed to the millennial reign of Christ. So once again, you see the focus of worship amplified here. We understand that the second coming of Christ that will end Daniel's 70th week and usher in the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And during that time, what we clearly see in scripture is that the feast of tabernacles will be reinstated. 
Consider Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. Again, the emphasis of this feast is extremely clear just in this text alone. But one of the things that we clearly see in verse 16 is we have another emphatic reference to the deity of Christ. Because the king, the Lord of hosts, is the king of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And it's very clear that he will receive worship. So if he is not God, then this is idolatry. But the fact that he will receive worship reinforces the fact that we bring worship to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who do not keep or honor the Feast of Tabernacles, the cost will be steep. Jesus will be ruling and reigning with a rod of iron, very clearly. But here's what I want you to see very clearly tonight with respect to what we're looking at right now. And again, I just, I'm just trusting the Lord to help us to, to, to get this. What's very, what's very clear, what's very obvious, is just how serious God takes worship. Just how serious he takes worship. Obviously, he took worship seriously in the Old Testament. Obviously, he will take it very seriously during the millennial reign of Christ. But I wonder, I wonder if we as his house in this age, I wonder if we understand how serious he takes it right now. I wonder. There's a familiar verse that shows us how serious God takes it. And it's John 4, 23. It's been referenced, I think, in just about everything that's been taught this week. And rightfully so. It needs to be reinforced. But Jesus says, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. At a high level, Jesus' point with this Samaritan woman is that worship is not limited to a physical location. And since worship is not limited to a physical location, true worshipers do not limit their worship to a physical location. Now, having said that, as a group, we understand that every word that we see in God's word matters. Every word, every phrase, every statement, it all matters. It's all critical. And so Jesus tells us something here that's critical. He tells us that the Father is seeking something. 
Listen, it's not that he sought something or that he's going to seek something. Is that he is seeking something. So what God was seeking when Jesus said this is exactly what he is seeking right now as you and I sit here. What is that? He is seeking true worshipers. He's seeking it. Listen, this is important. This is so simple, but it's so critical. Listen, whatever God seeks informs us on what we should be seeking. So whatever God is seeking, that's telling you, that's telling me what we should be seeking. So that helps us to define a true worshiper. True worshipers are believers in Jesus Christ, listen, who seek to worship God. Why? Because that's what the Father is seeking. In other words, this speaks to what they are about ultimately. Why is it that I am seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth as a true worshiper? Because that's what he is seeking. That's what he desires. So if that is a desire of God the Father as a true worshiper, that must be my desire. So yes, I am not only preoccupied with being a true worshiper in this building, I am always preoccupied with being a true worshiper. It's what I am always seeking. It's what I must be about. God is seeking true worshipers and true worshipers are seeking to worship him. So guess what? The, de the detailed approach and the preparation that Solomon took in dedicating the temple is the approach that we take as true worshipers in our worship of God. We are very detailed. We are very deliberate. We are very focused. We are thinking about how we can offer and give God the very best. How can we maximize his glory in every service? How can we maximize his glory in every ministry endeavor? How can we maximize God's glory in our home? How can we maximize his glory in the workplace? How can we maximize his glory on the mission field? In everything that we do as a true worshiper, we're always thinking about how can we worship God? We never approach our worship service just kind of, oh, well, you know, and here it is. Man, I'm sitting here and I'm singing about how faithful he is, but really in my heart, there's a brother, there's a sister in the room that I'm bitter against. And I'm avoiding them. And my pastor is preaching, but, but in my heart, I'm, I'm really, I'm mad at him about something. God says, that's not true worship. God says, I can't receive that. Intellectually, we can acknowledge and agree 
that worship is more than what happens in this room. But here's what exposes so many as not being a true worshiper of God. Because for so many, the only time that God hears them sing to him is once or twice in a room like this. That's on a Sunday morning, a Tuesday night, or a Wednesday night. God says, if you're singing to me on Sunday, I won't hear that again until Tuesday or Wednesday. And after Tuesday or Wednesday, I won't hear that again until Sunday. If I told my wife I love her on Valentine's Day, our anniversary, and her birthday, do you think she would believe that I really love her? You say, I don't know, she married you, she might. <laughs> Sorry. For true worshipers, the only offering they give is not on Sunday morning doing the collection. True worshipers, listen, are as, are as attentive to God's word at 6 a.m. in the morning as they are on Sunday morning when the preacher is preaching it. And this segues into the last focus of the evening. And if I can, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask me, uh, we really need a listening urgency right now. Because I do believe there's something the Lord would have us to see right now that is so urgent as it pertains to his glory. Do you look at verse 6? Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him before the ark sacrificed sheep and oxen, which could not be told nor numbered for multitude. Now, the Levites moved the ark from its temporary location in the tabernacle to its permanent resting place in Solomon's temple, as we have discussed. But what I want you to see very clearly from verse 6 is the theme of worship. The theme of worship. When King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel were assembled before the ark, what did they do? Sacrificed. Sheep and oxen. That gives clarity to the theme of worship, especially when you consider the location of this house. This house was built on Mount Moriah, the same location where Abraham was to offer his only son Isaac. And we know from that, we've been referencing that, that that is the first time that we see the word worship. And what we find very clearly in that context, very clearly, 
is that true worship always takes place in the context of costly sacrifice. That is true worship. So here we go. The theme of worship is sacrifice. That is the theme. Mount Moriah is also the location where King David, Solomon's father, bought a threshing floor from Orana, the Jebusite. And what did David say there? In 2 Samuel 24, 24, he says, Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. True worship of God is costly. And this speaks to why we have so many false worshipers. Because what false worshipers are looking for is they're looking to worship God on the cheap. They're looking for a bargain. How can I worship God? Listen, I'm okay with it costing me something. I'm just not okay with it costing me everything. So yeah, man, I'm, I'm really good with getting my praise on on Sunday morning, especially when the choir and the praise team sing the songs that I really like. And then when I don't like the selection, well, then I dial down and tone down my intensity. As a matter of fact, I kind of grumble and mumble all the way through it because I don't understand why they keep singing that song. Not thinking about God's glory, I'm thinking about mine. Because after all, the focus and the goal of worship in this setting is for me to get a buzz, right? So that I feel good. Whether God is worshiped and glorified, I could care less. I just want to make sure I get out of this what I believe I need. But you see this very clearly, this theme in verse six, they sacrifice sheep and oxen. Sheep represent the deep poverty and weakness in us. Oxen represent or they picture labor and servanthood. I understand that oxen can be associated with paganism, but if you remember in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, when Paul talks about the elder who is worthy of double honor, he likens it to an oxen and he likens it to, to labor. So you see that picture very clearly in God's word. So as sheep and oxen in the total dedication of ourselves to God, what we're saying in genuine humility is Father, I'm poor. I'm a poor and weak vessel. But all that I am, I offer fully to you to use whenever, wherever, and in whatever capacity pleases you. I recognize that I'm nothing. I recognize that I am offering you nothing because I have nothing to offer you. I'm poor, I'm weak, I'm needy. But if you can use me, here I am fully. The essence of this is captured for us in Romans 12:1, but I'm so afraid that in this Laodicean age, we miss what our heart attitude should be in presenting our bodies, our lives, ourselves as living sacrifices to God. 
Because listen very carefully, I need you to hear this. If we do not recognize and embrace our absolute bankruptcy, then what we end up presenting and offering to God, listen, is seasoned with the putrid stench of self-righteousness. So in our minds, listen, we're not offering God something that somehow he can use. I don't know how, but somehow. I mean, I know how. It's his mercy and his grace, but it's certainly not because of me. But, 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 but that, that's not the spirit now that we're offering or presenting ourselves to him. It's not, no. It's not that God, here I am, somehow maybe you can use me. Listen very carefully. It's God, here I am, someone that you need to use. You, you, you get to use this. Look at me. You see the difference? God, who am I that you're mindful of me? Who am I that you would give me the time of day? Who am I that you even know my name? Who am I that you even acknowledge me? Who am I? If we don't come that way, Man, we come running in and it's like, ha, here I am, Lord, I'm your man. <laughs> Woo. Interesting. If Sam has said it once, he said it a thousand times to us at Midtown. And it goes like this. And if you're at Midtown, you can finish the sentence. Hey, Let's small ourselves. Let's small ourselves. Nobody's a big deal. Nobody is something. Nobody's impressive. Nobody's the man. Nobody's the woman. Let's small ourselves. Listen, the greatest enemy of true worship is the pride of life. That is the greatest enemy of true worship. The pride of life. Those who are given to this are not okay with being unknown. They're not okay with not being heard. They're not okay with being last. They're not okay with not being served. They're not okay with not being highly thought of. Not okay with not having it their way. Not okay with that. No, this person is someone, listen, they have an insatiable appetite for vainglory. Not God's glory. Their burden, their conviction is for vainglory. Subtly, in their mind, they are as impressive as God Himself. They are a big deal. They are not okay with smalling themselves. No, they want to enlarge themselves. 
And with that being their true appetite, that being their true mindset, they are superior to you. You're not as smart as them. You're not as wise. You're not as gifted. You're not as talented. These are those who wreck marriages, ruin children, split churches, and destroy people. In ministry, they are a pastor's absolute worst nightmare. This was the issue with the scribes and the Pharisees, was it not? They were so impressed with themselves that they were so very unimpressed with Jesus. So instead of crowning him as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, they belted out, crucify him. One of the takeaways from the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, I love it. Listen, <laughs> I think if he could be a fly on the wall in the church, I think he would be repulsed by the reverence that we give him. Because I promise you, we are far more impressed with him than he was with himself. And you see it clearly. Ephesians 1.19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power, not mine, to usward, who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Ephesians 3, 7, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Ephesians 3, 20, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Paul was not an advocate of self-sufficiency. A young man was working at an art museum as a guide. His job was very, very simple. His job was to take people on a tour in the museum and he would bring them to a piece of art and his job was to introduce the piece and answer any questions they might have and just simply stand to the side and let them behold the masterpiece. Pretty simple, no big deal. I guess you needed to know a little bit about art to be able to do that, but apart from that, it was very straightforward. So he'd bring people in and says, this is a Monet and it was painted by this artist during this time and He'd step back and people would ooh and awe and go, wow, look at that, and just be breathtaking by it. But in a very short time, he forgot his role. And began to think people were actually coming to see him. So instead of stepping away from the works of art, he would linger. And as they oohed and awed, he would smile and even had the audacity to say, I'm glad you like it. He didn't paint it. 
He began to stick his chest out. He was impressed with uh, his ability to talk about a piece of art that he didn't paint. He even responded with an occasional thank you. (laughs) Eventually, lingering was not enough anymore. It wasn't just that, hey, uh, this is a Monet. It was, let me tell you about the Monet. So people who came to see the Monet, they couldn't see it because uh, he was in the way. So as he was standing in front of the art, taking credit for work that he didn't do, the people who came to see it had to do this. I'm afraid that for some of us, this is what people are having to do in our lives. Our families are having to, is, is, is God's glory back there somewhere? Because we've gotten so in the way. The very work he was sent to reveal, he began to conceal. Listen, vainglory conceals the glory of God. Vainglory conceals the glory of God. You know what vainglory is? Vainglory, I want to tell you, this is exactly how God sees it. Vainglory is glory that is wasted on self. And it is the antithesis of the theme of worship. Because the theme of worship is not self. It is the sacrifice of self. And so we get out of the way. Lord, it's not about me. It can't be about me. Why? Because I know who you are. And because I know who you are, I know who I am. I I see you, the masterpiece that you are, the masterpiece that this is. And God forbid that me and my agenda and my opinions and all of that filth would get in the way. God forbid. Listen, if the glory of God is being concealed in your life, it is because somewhere along the way, you have read the press and you've bought it, that you're a big deal the pride of life. Be something. I tell you what, the devil is always selling that newspaper in your life. Man, look at this. You hear what people are saying about you? You hear what people are thinking about you? Can I tell you, listen, man, I, I love my pastor. I love my pastor. And over the years, I've, I've, had, I've had a number of what I would call transformative conversations with Sam. And one of the biggest ones that I had with him about two weeks ago, and I praise God for it, was in his office. 
And he was talking to me about this very conference. And he says, hey, just just trust the Lord. Don't don't get preoccupied with trying to be great and all those kinds of things. And just rest in the Lord. It's like, oh, (laughs) I needed every word of that. You know what? I would offend God in the highest if I came here and got up here and tried to be something. No way. If you are in that position, though, where you think you've become something, then you are in a terrible position with God. And the only acceptable response tonight, not tomorrow or next week, is to sacrifice the pride of life. Listen, I don't mean this to be unkind or harsh. I really don't. But the only acceptable response in God's eyes is to offer your unimpressive self to him. God, I agree. You are awesome. You are incredible. You are holy, holy, holy. You are righteous. You are light, and in you is no darkness at all. There is no unrighteousness found in you. Everything that you are, God, in and of myself, I'm not. And I'm thankful for your mercy and your grace and your long-suffering that you would accept what I am offering to you, which, God, I really believe is nothing. So here I am. God, I'm not buying the lie. I'm not buying the hype. I'm not buying that newspaper the devil was trying to sell me. God, you are everything, and you're awesome, and I am not. And, Lord, if you can use me, here I am. Lord, We thank you for your word. It is only perfect. It is only right. It is only true. It is only pure. And we thank you for what you have done in this space. And God, I do believe that we have all heard from you in some way tonight. And Lord, whatever we need to do, Lord, if if for some it's just to come face to face with our need to get out of the way and humble ourselves, small ourselves, and offer our unimpressive selves to you and just marvel in the fact that you can somehow use us. In Jesus' name, amen.